fire at the doorstep. Literally, fire's burning 80 feet right above their house here. The unpredictable situation in the South Okanagan and expanded evacuation orders. Dangerous drought. We're not able to guarantee our water supply until the end of the summer. With no end in sight to the hot, dry forecast, the dire warning from officials. And busted for a breathalyzer test she physically couldn't take. I was absolutely distraught and humiliated. How she fought the law and she won. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. New evacuation orders are in place in the South Okanagan, where the Inkameep wildfire is growing and threatening a number of homes near Oliver and Asuyas. Paul Johnson is live near the fire line. What are the conditions like now, Paul? Well, Sophie, it's really a mixed bag in terms of progress. We were just remarking earlier how uh, this mountainside here has the least amount of smoke and fire on it that we've seen since we started reporting here. There have been helicopters working and dropping water. They've made good progress. But just as we were talking about that, some people came up and pointed out a new massive plume of smoke just on the northern end of the fire up near Oliver. So this is still a dangerous and unpredictable fire. Fire's burning 80 feet right above their house here. They got sprinklers on the house. The fear was that winds would whip up the Inca Meep fire overnight to threaten homes and property. That forecast was correct. Seen in this gripping video shot by a family and their realtor as they worked to save their home near Oliver. They succeeded. Most of our forest lands uh, have already been impacted by the fire, which is saddening. We love our forests. Reacting to the overnight flare-up, Chief Clarence Louie of the Asuyas Indian Band says after days of the fire scorching their land, much of it has blown off of their reserve, but not without their own close calls and evacuations. He says this summer is a good time to stay out of the woods, period. That's the biggest scare and the biggest problem is people going back in the forest for recreational uses or hunting uses when they shouldn't be back there, at least for another month. That the fire grew overnight is a given. How much, though, they're not certain because of visibility. There has been significant growth on the northeast and south perimeters. However, smoke has inhibited the ability to get an accurate, updated measurement of the size. The hills are alive. At the border town winery in Asuyus, Tawny Craig's known for serving wine with a song, but with the hills also alive with flames. The heart of BC's wine country is facing another thing to struggle through. We expected that uh, our patio would have been packed and uh, we would be serving our wonderful wines and our cider out here to uh, a host of very happy people that got out from the pandemic to get out and have a great holiday in British Columbia. And how many have you got today? Not very many. After pandemic and now fire, Tawny's got another song that nicely captures their approach to things now. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. It's a good outlook uh, with what's going on. Um, the new evacuation orders today, about 150 homes ordered out. That's on top of the hundreds already under evacuation order. Also, another several hundred on evacuation alert. No sign that the fire is going to be put out soon. Sophie. 
All right, thanks for that, Paul Johnson in Asuyas for us. Now let's take a look at the provincial fire situation. There are currently 267 active fires burning in B.C. That is up 10 over the last two days. 39 are fires of note. That means they are highly visible or pose a potential threat to public safety. And 86 are considered out of control. The majority of fires so far this year, just about 50%, have been caused by lightning, with 34.7% caused by humans. And there are 4,300 properties across the province on evacuation order, nearly 18,000 on evacuation alert. Well, the two-mile road wildfire just south of Sycamus continues to grow, forcing a new batch of evacuation alerts. That fire is now more than eight square kilometers, and a number of homes in the Swansea Point area along Merrill Lake have been placed under evacuation alert. For the time being, crews have managed to halt the northern perimeter of that fire, which is burned within meters of homes on the south end of Sycamus. The fire remains out of control, and wind gusts of up to 35 kilometers per hour are making for a difficult firefight. Communities are mostly empty in the Edgewood and Fauquier areas as two wildfires continue to threaten those towns. The Octopus Creek fire is burning 11 kilometers south of Fauquier and said to be more than 4,200 hectares. The Michaud Creek blaze is burning about 20 kilometers south of Edgewood. Dozens of firefighters are battling those fires along with two helicopters and heavy equipment. B.C. wildfire officials are concerned, however, as strong winds are expected to continue driving the aggressive fire behavior. Lightning is believed to have caused both of those fires. Crews are pleading with boaters to give their air crews space to operate on Skaha and Vaso Lakes as they battle the huge Thomas Creek fire. That one has consumed nearly 70 square kilometers on the east side of the valley above Skaha Lake. Pleasure craft restrictions are in effect and the Okanagan Falls boat launch has been closed. Just over 700 properties, including a number of farms, remain under evacuation alert. And three helicopters have been working to try to get the upper hand on the White Rock Lake wildfire northeast of Merritt. Even though temperatures have dropped a bit, ground crews have been challenged by a growth in this out-of-control blaze, thanks mainly to increased winds. It was last pegged at 7,400 hectares. The Thompson-Nicola Regional District has issued evacuation orders and alerts for a number of properties in the Westwold area. There have also been smoke impacts to the hydro line in the area, with multiple outages occurring due to the smoke. Well, it's been five weeks since most areas of southern B.C. have seen any significant rainfall. And with no change in the forecast, the province is rapidly moving into historic drought conditions. Richard Zussman reports on what the drought could lead to and what can be done about it. The signs of drought are impossible to escape. Dried out lawns, disappearing creeks. Essentially, the southern half of B.C. have had little, little to no rainfall for over five weeks and counting now. Uh, we do have continued dry weather in the forecast, so we don't see conditions improving anytime soon. There are seven areas in the province shown in red now at drought level four. The West Kettle area seeing the lowest levels of water ever observed. One community has already broken a record for longest time without rain and more may follow on top of dealing with the crippling heat dome earlier this month. I think in the future, uh, drought events like this will just be called summer um, in BC, especially on the coast and uh, the Okanagan. Some places like the Gulf Islands are so dry, tourists are asked to bring their own water. 
And the advice to almost everyone in the province is it's time to reduce water use. Your outdoor watering, uh, follow all of your local and regional government water restrictions. The Sunshine Coast Regional District will be putting in water use restrictions starting Friday. The fear, the community could run out of water entirely by summer's end. We're not able to guarantee with the current demand from the community our um, water supply until the end of the summer, early fall. Ecologists are also seeing a severe impact on waterways and that is threatening the lives of fish and other wildlife. The organisms that are living there, whether they're fish, amphibians, invertebrates, other things, um, are really going to have their habitat squeezed on them. And what's left of their habitat um, will be getting warmer. It has now been five months of substantially below average rainfall. And for now, there's no hope in the forecast that will change anytime soon. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with a look at how this summer stacks up so far when it comes to rainfall records. Christy? Thanks, Sophal. As uh, Richard mentioned, so Nanaimo broke a record today with 35 days of no rain, but we have a number of others. Victoria and Vancouver have 37 days with no rain, but it's not actually a record. Uh, the records uh, far surpass that, say, for example, in Vancouver with 58, but nonetheless, an incredible stretch. Kamloops and Kelowna surprisingly only has 15 days with no rain. That's because they did see some thunderstorms earlier this month and it brought some rainfall. But when you look at the drought, uh, Victoria and Kelowna have only had less than 10 millimeters of rain since the beginning of June and the amount of rain you can see in Kamloops and Vancouver is really from the beginning of June. Uh, since about June 15th it's been exceptionally dry and uh, even looking beyond that it's been even longer as Richard was saying. I mean it's been months now that we've had below seasonal uh, conditions in terms of rainfall. Pretty incredible. All right, we'll talk to you uh, later for the forecast, Christy. Thank you. A B.C. woman is back behind the wheel after a run-in with a roadside breathalyzer test. Jamie Fletcher has a medical condition, which meant she couldn't provide a proper sample, no matter how hard she tried. The penalties she was facing and how she managed to fight back, next on the news hour. Meet the man behind some of the everyday sounds heard in film and TV and the unique, way, unique ways he creates those noises. That's coming up. I'm a little bit of... La, 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 la. A little bit of Lexus. Schitt's Creek in stop motion. The tiny town created by a BC man and how it's caught Hollywood's attention. That's later. Right now, though, a Vancouver Island woman says the RCMP refused to listen to her when she tried to explain her physical disability during a breathalyzer test. And as Ted Trenecki reports, she says that put her through an unnecessary ordeal. Jamie Vanderleek is a full-time nurse who hadn't missed a day's work during the whole pandemic. She was looking so forward to some time off this month in the Okanagan. She's always suffered from the public's reaction to her facial disfigurement caused by Bell's palsy, but the RCMP took it to a whole new level. So I tried. I felt like it was probably about 20 times. Later in the report, I seen that he wrote it was 12 times that I'd, I had tried and failed to make the sample. She even went to the detachment's watch commander offering a blood sample, but was refused. She was facing 90 days of no driving, a 30-day vehicle impoundment. Her car was towed for 30 days and it was the family vehicle while on vacation. She also was facing a $500 fine, a $250 license reinstatement fee, and at the end of all of that would have been referred to a responsible driver program to learn about the dangers of alcohol and driving. Her experience, she says, has been 
been particularly difficult. I just stared down at my feet in complete humiliation, trying not to cry, because I just, just felt completely humiliated. Um, and that I had no way of proving my innocence. Blowing. There is a feature on those roadside breathalyzers that with a push of a button will allow a partial sample for those with breathing issues. But in BC, that feature's been disabled because it usually results in a lower alcohol reading. But the degree to which it's going to be lower is not going to be so significant that it justifies punishing people like Ms. Vanderleek and all the other people with disabilities and medical conditions that have been physically incapable of providing a sample and have had to face the consequences. There's other people with disabilities out there that have reached out to me and said, this happened to me too, and they couldn't get it overturned. And to me, that's a real injustice. Even though she won her case at a Road Safety BC review hearing, she still has had to endure the time without a license and a vehicle, both needed for her work. And since going public, she's heard from several other Bell's Palsy victims who couldn't get their suspensions overturned. Ted Chernocky, Global News. That collapsed crane at a construction site in Kelowna has now been dismantled and removed. The area deemed safe and the evacuation order lifted. Global's Travis Lowe has more on the return home for displaced residents and why some wanted to wait longer. Carmel Court residents were finally allowed home today. I pushed really hard to hold it off a day or two more. Despite the fact that the building's manager wasn't in favor of it. People are going back into stinky apartments with rotten food, meat, whatever products. And uh, I don't think it's safe. Remediation is underway at the Bertram Street building after being under an evacuation order for 10 days due to the deadly crane collapse. Out of the way, everybody! Out of the way! So as residents drifted in, their fridges were dollied out. According to Stefan, the building manager here at Carmel Court, the majority of fridges and freezers are biohazards and have to be removed and taken to the dump. Numerous days of no power have turned residents' fringes into bacteria cultures rife with heinous odors that can't be removed. But first, each fridge has to be emptied of all the rotted food and put into that garbage container over there. The offending fridges are then stacked in another dumpster raising many questions for residents about returning. Well, I don't know if we really can yet. If I don't have a fridge, how can I be in my home without food? I might lose my fridge and freezer. There could be uh, damage to my kitchen floor. Still, many are thankful to come home today regardless. Yes, I'd like to sleep in my own bed. <laughs> But amidst all the uncertainty of what may await residents of the building in their apartments, Carmel Court's Carl Noren. I'm not anxious. I'm not upset. Put today's return home and possible loss of a fridge. People died here. This is small potatoes. Into a bigger and sobering perspective. This is a minor incident in our lives compared to what's happened here. And everyone at Carmel Court seemed to understand that perfectly. Travis Lowe, Global News, Kelowna. Coming up, the PR bill for that infamous hose spraying incident in Delta. I was really quite shocked. How much it cost taxpayers to handle this crisis. Plus, a spike in vandalism at local churches. The fear things could escalate just ahead.
It was just over a year ago that the wife of Delta's police chief was being investigated for allegedly spraying a woman with a garden hose. An investigation which, despite the potential for conflict of interest, they handled themselves, even hiring an outside crisis communications team to handle the optics. Tonight, our Catherine Urquhart can finally tell you how much it cost and what Delta police didn't want you to see. That is assault. That head with the hose and turn the hose on. It was June 25th, 2020, when Global News first reported about an investigation into assault allegations against Lorraine Dubord, wife of Delta Police Chief Neil Dubord. The one end when I asked her to get down. She was accused of spraying a woman with a hose outside the Dubord's beachfront home. Now, a clearer picture is emerging of what went on behind the scenes at Delta Police. It comes seven months after our Freedom of Information request and after an appeal to the Information and Privacy Commissioner after Delta Police refused to produce documentation. The invoices that have been released reveal how a pricey crisis management firm was used to mitigate damage, and they show who was involved. Two days after our first story, PR firm Navigator is hired by Delta Police. Day one's bill, $3,000 for phone calls, draft communication statements, and key messages. Day two, $6,300 for phone calls with Deputy Chief Norm Lipinski and Chief Neil Dubord and strategy development. Day three, $8,800 for multiple calls with Chief Dubord and Deputy Chief Lipinski. A review of Dubord's statement and prep for a police board meeting calls with police board members and advice for them. Also, a statement for the mayor. Day four, $3,900 is billed for a police board call, police board monitoring, and a media review. Those first four days of public relations, $22,150. I was really quite shocked when I started reading some of the quotes that we saw on the invoices. Um, Uh, notes to the mayor, um, statements uh, by the police board. As Global News continued to pursue answers about procedures and why the force had not brought in an outside agency to investigate, there were more invoices, some related to the Surrey RCMP investigation, Crown Council and the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner. The running total, $36,000. Later, an additional invoice of $7,000. The final cost, $43,666. Delta Mayor George Harvey later said the expenditure did not meet the high standards of taxpayers and he was seeking spending controls. Yet it's now clear Harvey and other board members were advised by Navigator. Government has to be more transparent. They can't hide behind FOIs. This is the people's business. This is not two private things that are happening. This has to do with government spending. Kieran Sidhu, the Delta school teacher who was sprayed by Lorraine Dubord, is also troubled. I'm alarmed that they received such detailed training for every aspect that that was happening at the time. So not only for their media statements, but also for their RCMP statements. It's very discouraging for regular people to see this as anything but 
cringeworthy, dishonest, and unethical. That is assault. Lorraine Dubord was not charged and received alternative measures. Delta Police Chief Neil Dubord maintained he was arm's length from the criminal investigation of his wife, but invoices reveal he was very involved in damage control and spin. Dubord and many others receiving costly coaching, courtesy of Delta taxpayers. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Burnaby RCMP say one of the trucks involved in a fatal crash yesterday was stopped when it was hit. A 57-year-old man stopped his truck on Duthie Avenue near Montecito Drive. Police say the man was not in his truck when another pickup slammed into him. He died at the scene. The moving pickup flipped and the 38-year-old driver of that vehicle was also killed. Police say it is still early in the investigation. They have not publicly identified either driver and there's still a lot they don't know. For instance, why was the older man stopped and out of his truck? What we're looking for is any witnesses, any dash cam video that can kind of explain to us where he was uh, in relation to the vehicle when the collision happened. In particular, police want to hear from anyone with dash cam footage from the minutes before the crash at 5.20 yesterday afternoon on Duthie as far north as Hastings. They ask that you give them a call. Vancouver police are seeing a major spike in vandalism at places of worship. It comes as churches, in particular the Catholic Church, face outrage over their past stewardship of residential schools. And the country faces a reckoning over the children who died there. Rumina Dea reports. Residents wondering what is going on when they set eyes on this. Very scary. Vancouver police have erected 24-7 surveillance cameras at St. Mary's Ukrainian Catholic Church near Camby and 14th. I'm so upset about this, believe me. The pastor discovered lighter fluid, rags, and a suspicious man at the church early Tuesday morning. We're currently investigating 13 incidents of mischief and vandalism that have occurred at church properties since June 2nd. This is a dramatic increase. 13 incidents across the city, including five of note since last month. A rare and disturbing spike, say police. Graffiti, killers, released the records. Rocks thrown through windows. Orange paint splashed on at least one church and threats of fire. The VPD investigating whether there are links to other crimes targeting churches in the Lower Mainland and across B.C. Five churches have burned on First Nations land across the province since the recent discovery which shocked the nation. The suspected remains of hundreds of children found in unmarked graves at residential schools in B.C. and across Canada. We understand that this is very emotional for a lot of people. There are uh, better ways to express your anger and frustration and express your views than committing crime. No arrests have been made in any of the 13 cases. The VPD believes they're likely dealing with a loose-knit group of suspects, but say others have been inspired to join. The damage relatively minor, but police are concerned it's going to escalate. It's putting people in danger. It's emboldening other people to commit crime. A spokesperson for the Archdiocese of Vancouver told us no one was available for an on-camera interview, adding they will not be discussing the incidents due to privacy and safety concerns. Vancouver police are urging witnesses to come forward before someone is injured or worse. Romina Dea, Global News. 
COVID cases going in the wrong direction, the rise in daily infections, and where we're seeing the increase. Plus, homes leveled in an instant. Residents of Barrie return to what's left one week after a devastating tornado. Well, after an extremely busy afternoon commute, traffic is finally easing off eastbound along Highway 1 from the Cassiar Tunnel right through the Burnaby Lake stretch. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Well, when it comes to COVID-19 in our province, we are seeing a bit of a slow uptick in new cases. We have 89 new infections in the last 24 hours and 781 cases are currently active. That's up more than 130 in a week. 53 patients are in hospital with 15 in intensive care. Thankfully, there are no new deaths to report. 80.2% of people aged 12 and older have received their first dose of vaccine, while just about 57% have now received two doses. Let's bring in Keith Baldry for more. Keith, this is not a surge. We've certainly seen mm. those before, but this is not it yet. Uh, it is going in the opposite direction, though. Uh, where is transmission happening? Yeah, this was expected, though, folks. Uh, this was laid out in the restart plan back before July when we're reopening. We're going to have more uh, contacts, more gatherings. So there had been an expectation that we're going to have more uh, case numbers picked up by testing. Thankfully, not a higher hospitalizations or ICUs or deaths. And that's, that's very good news. But it is also tied to people who are not vaccinated. And again, one health authority in particular is starting to lead the charge here. So the Interior Health Authority now has a lower vaccination rate than the province, 73%. And now they are the dominant health authority where the cases are. 43% of the cases in the past seven days. Fraser at 81%, a little lower than that. But take a look at Vancouver Coastal. 85% vaccination rate, the highest in the entire province. And they've only got 19% of the cases. That's an indication, again, that people right now, it's about 96 to 98% of the cases are in people who have not been fully vaccinated. Or in some cases, about 24% uh, of cases was just one dose. So really, it's about people who haven't been vaccinated are really consisting of the numbers every day. So towns like in the interior, Nelson, Creston, Enderby, Grand Forks, where there was an outbreak at a wedding where 30 people became sick, that's what's driving the numbers now because simply the low vaccination rate means you're going to have more COVID numbers. So look for that interior number on the weeks ahead. Hopefully it comes down. If mm -hmm. it comes down, we're not going to see a further uptick. Let's hope. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. We'll throw a little more fuel on that election speculation fire as the federal government has come to B.C. with more money. The MP for West Vancouver Sunshine Coast Sea to Sky Country in Squamish today at the Sea to Sky Gondola. Patrick Wheeler announcing a new $485 million fund to help the tourism sector across the country as borders begin to reopen. There's a lot of projects that I think would be tailor-made for this, whether it's in the destination uh, development or the product development point of view. I know a lot of the conversations I've had recently with operators in the tourism sector is there's a big interest in looking at slower tourism, more sustainable tourism, and that's one of the areas that this is, uh, this is able to support. No specific amount of money is earmarked for any particular business or sector, but Wheeler says a wide array of organizations can apply for the money, including businesses, nonprofits, and First Nations. 
In Health Matters tonight, a warning if you like to eat shellfish. Elevated water temperatures are increasing the risk of foodborne illness with 10 local outbreaks in the last 10 days. Conservation officers have noted a spike in the number of people out harvesting shellfish illegally. But with warm water comes more bacteria. In particular, Vibrio bacteria, which can cause illness or death from eating undercooked shellfish. The BC Centre for Disease Control is warning British Columbians to harvest only in approved open areas to minimize the risk. Up next, surviving a tornado. Remember, just spinning end over end, we're hitting the ceiling, the wall. One week after Barry was hit, the long process of picking up the pieces. Plus... A man you've likely never heard of, but you've definitely heard. This is BC with Jay Durant, brought to you in part by Fortis BC, BC's energy solutions provider. It's been a week since a tornado packing winds of more than 200 kilometers an hour slammed into Barrie. Dozens of homes were destroyed. Global's Erica Vela was on the scene just hours after the tornado hit and has more on how residents are coping. I just saw all the building materials in our compound. Everything flew straight up in the air. The doors ripped off the trailer. There's a tornado right there. Swept away by a tornado. I remember just spinning end over end. We're hitting the ceiling, the wall, the floors, like just felt like being in a laundry machine. Uh, then I think I blacked out maybe 10, 15 seconds, something like that, and woke up over here just lying in the dirt. The tornado was basically right on top of us. Literally touched by the natural disaster, Stephen Gallion says he's lucky to be alive. It's a little surreal just to see the amount of damage, just how far everything was thrown around, just the sheer destruction of it all. It was, uh, it was pretty breathtaking. I kind of feel like I'm in a movie, but it hasn't ended. We're on day seven and it just keeps going. Kim Ridgers says she was struggling to keep her yoga studio afloat during the pandemic. The day before it was set to reopen, the tornado hit her home. Pure chaos for the last seven days. Um, it's just been a nightmare. I'm trying to furiously pick up the pieces of my life. Initially, there were 78 homes that were tagged unsafe. That number has gone down to about 70. Some of them, you know, they have roof damage or they have some particular piece, but it's been able to make safe uh, through, through the work of contractors, and that allows people to get back in. Ten people were injured. All have been released from hospital. But Barry's mayor says many are still dealing with issues like housing and insurance. Barry has an incredibly tight rental market. Uh, very difficult to find anything at all. Almost zero vacancy. The other major challenge, I guess, is going through that insurance process, which... Uh, Many companies have been great. I've been hearing great reports about some. A few others that have been a bit more difficult or hard to reach, and obviously that adds to the challenge. It's crazy that nobody got hurt. John Hunwick says he likely won't be able to return home for another year. But in all the chaos over the last seven days, he says there has been continued support. Like you always hear about it, you know, like you see like hurricanes in the States and tornadoes and stuff. You hear about it, and then when you see it in your own kind of city, it's kind of like, yeah, all right, yeah, people are good. Eric Vella, Global News. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon now with a look at our forecast. Uh, is there any rain down the road, Christy? Anything? 
Well, there is a little bit of something for the South Coast. I mean, really, the target, though, if you have a look at this image here, Sophie, uh, the target has been along the jet stream driving into the Central Coast for the last few days, and that will be the case for the next couple. So when we start to see some moisture push in, it really is going to be the Central and North Coast that will get the bulk of it. But overnight tonight, that system, that frontal system, is going to shift a little bit further south. So we may see a sprinkle or two across Metro Vancouver, majority of the showers could be across Vancouver Island, but it's really not going to move any further south. So southern BC, as you can see at high and extreme value at the fire danger rating, will continue as such. Hopefully a northern Vancouver Island will see a little bit of relief though. Now in terms of smoke forecast, once again, we're going to see a westerly flow blowing that smoke into Alberta tomorrow. Uh, western sections across BC, very lucky. We are going to see gusty winds again tomorrow afternoon. Big concern for the fires that are in place across uh, the interior regions, but they should be fairly light overnight. There's the dry conditions we're expecting across southern BC. Again, for the south coast, we may see a little bit of cloud cover. Chance of showers across Vancouver Island. For Metro Vancouver, it might be a sprinkle, but that would be about it. And then we'll see some cloud cover tomorrow morning, but then sunshine and again, no rain, significant rain as far as we can see. Tonight's central windows weather window is from Greg Really, This is from a Soyuz last night when the winds picked up. They were northwest wind gusts and through the evening and overnight hours. Pretty scary situation there. So, yeah, is it ever? All right, thanks for that, Christy. Well, on tonight's This is BC, we want to introduce you to a man named Mike Keeping. And even though you might not recognize his name, you probably have heard his work. Jada Rant explains. This would be a bizarre scene to walk into. A grown man sitting on the floor playing with a fake plant. But this is Mike Keeping's job. For 40 years, he's been a Foley artist, creating sound effects for movies and TV shows. So my brain is basically a library full of sound. It's, it's full of a whole pile of different things. He spent years building up his prop kit, something for every sound effect you could imagine. A lot of this stuff uh, looks like junk to the average person, but it's gold to me. He's never been stumped. There isn't a sound he can't replicate. So there's scenes where people are doing, like, putting their hand in goop. This is a body fall. Vegetables come in handy. Cabbage and celery are particularly useful for scenes that are a little more intense. Uh, this is a net break here. Our bone breaks, right? You can do double it up even. The finger bite. This cabbage for um, for stabbing. Animal documentaries, no problem. Mike's got that mastered too. Guitar picks taped to work gloves make for good claws. Then I proclaims this. He's worked on cartoons, remastering classics like Casper, Betty Boop, and Popeye. and an endless assortment of live action genres. So what I do is I usually take a machete and it gives it a really nice sword sounds, right? It all adds up to multiple seasons on dozens of different TV series, as well as movies and video games, never being selective about the jobs he takes. Uh, are there certain productions you like working on more than others? Uh, the ones that pay well. <laughs> Jay Durant, Global News. 
very practical. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. You're never going to think of celery and cabbage in quite the same way. You know, I really thought it was the sound of the bear eating, but apparently not. <laughs> well, a little surprise. He was hungry. That. I mean, you get lunch and you get to work at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can put your junk to good use. Okay, so tomorrow night, the Canucks are going to draft a new player. Next week, they're going to go after somebody in free agency, maybe more than just one person. And the shopping list is big defensemen. You know, kind of add some some guys with some size and strength. In other words, Jim wants a defenseman who wears XL sweaters, someone between the sizes of Quinn Hughes and Tyler Myers. So bigger than you then? Basically, yes. <laughs> okay. And later, yay, David, a tiny Schitt's Creek recreation lands in an Imo Man, a Netflix deal. You're definitely not XL. I am not XL. I'm the only athletes who've ever looked at me and said, you know what, your body's not that bad, are jockeys. That's it. <laughs> the only ones. Uh, There's a place for everyone, Scott. I know there is, and that's the beauty of this planet. <laughs> um, okay, so the uh, NHL draft begins 5 o'clock tomorrow, and the uh, Canucks will pick ninth overall, providing they don't trade the pick. Uh, Jim Benning has made phone calls. He's had people call him about the pick. He says he would think about trading it if he was offered a younger player who is already an NHL regular, and not many teams like trading good young players. But the draft isn't all that Jim Benning has to worry about these days. Jim Benning has his sights set on improving the Canucks as much as possible over the next one to two weeks. It'll start with Friday's draft where Vancouver holds the number nine pick overall. There is a chance Port Moody's Kent Johnson, a slick scorer and playmaker with the University of Michigan, could be available. But even if he isn't, the Canucks figure to land a pretty good prospect. At the ninth pick, there's some defensemen we really like. They may be there at nine. Uh... You know, and then there's some forwards we really like, too. And once the draft wraps up, free agency starts next Wednesday, and Benning is certainly honing on beefing up his blue line. The Canucks play it about as soft as any team in front of their own net, and Benning feels that has to change right now. I think we're going to try to be real active in free agency to, um, you know, kind of add some, some guys with some size and strength. You know, we've seen in the playoffs the teams that, you know, had some bigger guys back there that, you know, play a physical brand of hockey. They had success. And so I think that's something in free agency that we're going to be looking at. Benning is fielding calls on a few players. Nate Schmidt continues to be a popular target, but Benning says he never put up a for sale sign. It's been more other teams fishing for a deal. But you get the feeling Benning wouldn't mind shedding that $5.95 million cap hit. And Jake Vertanen, who's most likely played his last game as a Canuck, is clearly on the block. We've given teams permission to to talk to his agent and and, you know, they need to feel comfortable with the situation. So I don't know, like, where it's going to end up, but I guess we'll see in the next two or three days. 
And Benning hasn't ruled out bringing back a couple of Canucks who are unrestricted free agents, defenseman Travis Hamanick and center Brandon Sutter, who would fit nicely but at much less than his previous $4 million plus per season. You know, he's a veteran player. Um, you know, he, he's a good penalty killer. You know, we just think that he's an important guy in the room. And, you know, he's a good fit with our group already and, and a good leader in our group. So we'll just see where it ends up. Now, the NHL released the regular season schedule today, and it does include a 16-day break in February for the Winter Olympics. But the NHL hasn't made a deal with the Olympic bosses about sending players to the Olympics yet. So if they didn't end up going, they would revise the schedule and fill in that hole. As for the Canucks, they start this season with a six-game road trip. It begins October 13th against the Oilers. The first home game is October 26th against Minnesota, and that'll begin a seven-game homestand. So six-game road trip, then seven straight at home to start the year. Uh, Here are some notable home games for the Vancouver Canucks. They'll play the Oilers twice, 30th of October, January 25th. Seattle comes to town twice right after Christmas and also in April late in the season. There's the Colorado visit, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Montreal, December and March. Those three straight games, Montreal, Washington and Tampa, are part of a long homestand for the Canucks in that month. Okay, the Montreal Canadiens' unexpected playoff run might be the last hockey Sycamuses Shea Weber ever plays. He likely will not be with the Canadians this coming season because of issues with his thumb, his ankle and his knee. He played through more pain than we can imagine during the playoffs. And at the age of 35, Habs GM Mark Vergevan would not be surprised if Shea Weber never comes back to the NHL. Well, it was hard for Shea. I mean, that's all he knows. It's, you know, he's a hockey player to the core. Uh, he's been doing that all his life. And it's really hit hard to realize that he can no longer perform the way he's expecting for him and his teammates. It will be impossible to replace Shea Weber. I mean, what he brings to our, to our team on and off the ice, we'll try our best, but I know deep down that you can never replace Shea Weber. Nobody on the Whitecaps has been more public than head coach Mark DeSantos about his dislike for having to be a soccer nomad ever since the pandemic began last year. He knows they couldn't stay in Vancouver, but DeSantos often said he believed that playing in temporary homes cost the Whitecaps a win. So he's very happy, maybe more than anybody else, that they're coming home next week. When we look at the beginning of August, where we have also Max and Cava returning from the national team, where if everything goes well, we'll have a new addition uh, with the team. You know, I think that the fact of training at UBC, I think all of that is just going to be a massive boost for all of us. And as we said yesterday, maybe their first home game, August 21st at BC Place. That's what they're hoping for. There you go. That would be amazing. Thank you, Squire. And Nanaimo Man's tiny Shits Creek makes a big impression on the show's creator. That's next. An Nanaimo Man has turned his love of the show Shits Creek into an exciting new venture with a media giant. His stop-motion animation based on the show caught the eye of the series' creator and of the people at Netflix. Kylie Stanton reports. So let's see, I've got uh, the Rose Apothecary, of course, and the Cafe Tropical. Every building. I've got the Rosebud Motel. Every detail. There's the tools I need. But what really brings this toy town to life are the people in it. There's Twyla. 
The whole gang's there. Johnny, Moira, Alexis, and David. If this sounds familiar, you've probably seen the hugely popular CBC series, Schitt's Creek. It was so connected with these characters, and I really wanted to, to show my love for it. And um, this is the result. But in recent months, the parallels between Cameron's life and the Roses have become more and more obvious. Hi! Hi! You see, he spent countless hours creating this town, what was meant to be something fun for him and his son, Jack, after losing out on work as a host and wedding DJ during the pandemic. And I realized that in the show, Johnny Rose, the father, gifts the town of Schitt's Creek to his son. You bought a small town in 1991, Johnny. Yes, I bought that as a joke for my son. Wait, you actually purchased that town? And that is what brings, ends up bringing joy and opportunity to the family. That same joy and opportunity has also found its way to Cameron. Let's do it. What all started with this stop-motion video. I'm a Lamborghini. I'm a Hollywood star. After sharing it on his social media channels, it was retweeted by the one and only star and creator of the series, Dan Levy, calling it a masterpiece. That was the moment I was able to actually call myself an artist. Cameron started The Little Shit's Instagram page to share his work and quickly gained a following. David! Including one major player who reached out to collaborate. I got an email from them saying that they wanted me to pay me to create my toy art for their titles. Cameron can't reveal exactly what original content he'll be working on. I can still wrap my, my head around it. But like the main characters here, he's found growth, purpose, and renewed his passions. It's been really gratifying to know that uh, I can maybe start doing this for a living. And that's simply the best. Better than all the rest. Better Kylie Stanton, Global News. Anyone I've ever... Oh, that's sweet. Have you guys seen the show? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> I'm going to go watch reruns. We are, we are keeping up with the tour. Don't worry. All right. Uh, final word on the weather, Christy. <laughs> Sure, so overnight tonight there is a very slight chance of a sprinkle, but still no rain because that should clear out by late morning. We'll be back to sunshine. That's all the time we have for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Have a good night, everyone.